Thank you for that, uh, Raymond. Uh, there is a sermon outline, your order of services. You might want to actually have a look at that. Uh, that will be helpful <coughs> just to clarify so there's no confusion. Uh, the ACM and the combined service is here uh, at Christ College, uh, which means that the partitions at the back will be open. Uh, Grace Point Burwood, <coughs> you guys are the host uh, for that combined service because it's going to be held here. Uh, there'll be Litcom joining us. Kids program will be upstairs. <coughs> Youth program will be upstairs as well. So it's going to be a fairly packed day. Uh, that will be in two weeks. Uh, so as many people coming to help uh, would really actually be appreciated. Straight after the 9.45 service, <coughs> the ACM is going to be held here, uh, combined with all our service at Grace Point. You can also find all the ACM details. Uh, it should be there in your bulletins. Uh, it is. Uh, so uh, if you, and you would have received uh, an, an email newsletter as well with all that information uh, this last week. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you reveal yourself in and through your word. Uh, we thank you for this wonderful book, the book of Romans, uh, that reveals who you are and the means to find our salvation in all of life, really. Gracious God, we do ask right now, uh, in the next half an hour or so, you might quieten our hearts, you might remove the distractions from our lives so that we might hear you clearly and that you might speak into areas of our lives where we need your salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Quite a couple of years ago, our children's pastor uh, met someone at church who called themselves a low-key Christian. You know, it's like quite interesting, you know, when you work for a church for a long time, people have all sorts of categories they actually introduced, her, they introduced themselves to her as a low-key Christian. Um, and I've, I've had that experience too at Grace Point, you know, I, I visit some of our other services, and in one of our other services, someone actually, I'd never met them before, uh, I got to know them over morning tea, and they said to me, can I ask you a question, Huge? I know I'm a Christian because I have faith but I really don't feel compelled to live the Christian life, and that's why I haven't been at church for the last five years. I have faith in God, but I don't have to show it. That's what they said to our children's worker as well. Uh, and our children's worker, she thought to herself, and then she said to me later, not recently, you're not a low-key Christian, you're an off-key Christian. Well, she was thinking it anyway. She didn't actually say it, but she was certainly thinking it. But think with me of that term, off-key, out of tune, not a low-key Christian, but an off-key Christian, which is really not a Christian, is it? Someone who's out of tune, out of tune with what it means to belong to Jesus. Uh, in your Bibles, you notice Romans chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 6, you have a description of really what it means to be in tune with Jesus. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're looking at verse 5 and verse 6 this morning. What Paul is actually doing is he moves from the content of the good news of Jesus, verse 1 to verse 4, to the call, really, of the good news of Jesus in our lives, okay? So, you've got a content, verse 3, verse 4, then the call to belong to Jesus, verse 5, verse 6, call to content. So, you look at verse 5, it says, true Jesus, Paul says, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles and non-Jews to what? To call people to the obedience that comes from faith in Him. 
And then he says to the Roman Christians, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus. Notice Paul says, this is what it means to be in tune with the gospel, the good news of Jesus received into your life. This is what it means to to walk in step with the one who saved you. You're called to live a life of obedience that comes from faith in Jesus. And so you notice there is no separating faith and works. There is no separation between faith in Jesus and a life of faithfulness. No division between trusting Jesus and obeying Him. And so, what you begin to discover, even in these opening verses, you discover that faith and obedience, they actually go hand in hand. Now, this is the reason why you cannot separate the two. <clears throat> so, uh, I'm going to start with verse 6. So, in your Bible, start, well, let's go down to verse 6. We're going to start at verse 6. The first thing I want you to notice is that The call of the gospel and the life of the Christian is actually a call to what? Notice, to belong to Jesus. Uh, Christianity is actually a call to belong to Jesus. It's not a call to good works. It's not a call to keep the Ten Commandments. It's not a call to be a more moral person. Notice verse 6, the primary call in the Christian faith, it says, verse 6, you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Just like the Gentiles whom we are calling, you are also among those who are called to belong to Jesus. That's the primary call in the Christian life, to belong to Jesus. Notice that the call to belong to Jesus, uh, it's a call to Him, to, to allegiance to Him, to surrender to Him, and not to anything else, and not to anyone else in life. That's why becoming a Christian, according to Paul, you notice here, is defined in terms of who you will now serve in life. Uh, If you belong to Jesus... I assume you live under His rule. You surrender to His will, right? You learn from His Word. Uh, You obey His commands, just like Paul. That's why notice how Paul defines himself in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, notice after he's converted, he is now a what? A servant of Jesus. Now, that's actually true in all of our life, isn't it? If you think with me for a moment, our lives are always ruled by who or what owns us in life. Uh, our lives are always directed and shaped by what owns us. Our, our life is always controlled by what owns us in life, who we belong to, what we belong to. And if you're owned by some health issue, it dominates your life. <coughs> so I've got this post-viral cough that many of you know about. It's been 10 weeks, and it just dominates my life. It's just there every day, you know, and some days are better than others. If you're owned by your career, it directs your life. If you're owned by a love relationship, it controls your life. Now, let me say this. Everyone serves someone or something in their lives. Do you know that? Everyone serves someone or something in their lives. Uh, And you always serve that which you think is powerful enough to save you. Do you know that? You always serve that which you think is powerful enough to save you. And like I said uh, last week, Christian or not, religious or secular, everyone lives their life looking for salvation. Uh, We all have functional saviors in life that we look to for salvation in life. We live our lives looking to people, certain people, to possessions, to pursuits, to give us the security we're lacking, Uh, to give us the happiness we're looking for, to give us the love we desire, to give us the health we're missing, to give us the forgiveness we need. So everyone lives their life looking for salvation, Christian or not, religious or secular. And they always look, we always look to that which we think is powerful enough to save us. Uh, I I mentioned this before, and I keep coming back to it, but John Colmer, uh, in exploring the novels of the English novelist Ian Foster, writes that all these religious terms that you find, salvation, 
grace, conversion, renewal, all these religious terms in our day and age, they have been assimilated into the secular vision of life as well. And so, he says, instead of looking to God to find salvation, people now look to find salvation in, he says, the ideals of self-realization, self-fulfillment, or just sheer getting on or getting through. What does that mean? It means that whether you're a religious person looking to find salvation in God or a secular person, you are also looking to find salvation in self-realization. You look within to save yourself. Uh, Self-fulfillment, you look outside to save yourself in your work, maybe, a love relationship, perhaps, in your accomplishments, perhaps, in your social status, perhaps, or you're looking to get through something in your life right now, right? Uh, Salvation from personal suffering, salvation from poverty, uh, suffering from unhappiness, and you're trying to get through that, salvation from the circumstances you're in. In short, functionally, everyone is looking to find salvation in life. And you're always looking for salvation and what you believe is powerful enough to save you. What you think will fulfill or complete you in life. What you think will save you from some circumstance in life. What you feel will free you from your struggle or suffering in life. And so right now in this room, we're all looking for salvation. Now listen very carefully. Where you look to find your salvation is what ultimately owns you. Where you look to find your salvation ultimately owns you. It is who you belong to. It is what owns you in life. And our lives are always ruled by what owns us. Our lives are always directed and controlled by what owns us in life. Our lives are always shaped by what owns us. Let me give you a couple of examples, and some of you will relate to this. The young man or woman who thinks that having a well-paid job and prosperity or property will give him security lives serving that end, which is why career is so important to some of us, pursuing that end. Well, that's what owns you. You belong to your work, your career. That's what you believe has the power to save you, a successful career, a well-paid job. Uh, The single young man or woman who thinks that finding a love relationship will complete them, lives serving that end, pursuing that end. That's what owns them in life. They belong to the ideal of a love relationship. That's what they believe has the power to save them, a love relationship. Uh, The parent who thinks that their children's academic achievements is everything, they will live serving that end, pursuing that end. That's what owns them as parents. They belong to their children, not the other way around. That's what they believe has the power to save them, their children's academic achievements. The religious, some of us here are religious, who think that, Morality is everything. We'll try to be good enough. That's why some people try to, to be more moral in life, pursuing that end. That's what owns them as religious people. They belong to their good works. That what, that's what they believe has the power to save them, their good works, their morality. Now, the contrast, notice verse 6, the call of the gospel is to belong to, notice, Jesus Christ. To look not to the power of people, possessions, and pursuits to save them, but to the power of Jesus to save. Which is why when you come down to verse 16 and verse 17, and I said this, we're going to keep coming back to verse 16 and verse 17. Notice what Paul says. The gospel, notice, in contrast, is the power of God to save. The power of God to bring salvation to all who believe, to all who have faith in Him, Jew and Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is being revealed, a righteousness that you get by faith. 
And so the call of the gospel is a call to find your salvation in all of life, in the power of God to save. Did you know that? And so if you're visited this morning exploring Christianity, maybe you're trying to figure out Christianity or maybe you've got friends, you know, who, are, you know, who aren't clear in what Christianity is about, it's very important to understand what the gospel is not. It's there in your outline. It's so important to get this right so you and I do not misunderstand Christianity. The gospel of the good news is not about how you can save yourself. It's not a call to make up or to atone for your past failures of guilt and life. It's not a call to keep the Ten Commandments to earn God's acceptance. It's not a call to keep a ledger of good works in your life to win God's approval. Notice, it's a call to belong to Jesus, right? And so you're in school this week, you know, Matt, I, over there, you know, your friends are like, you know, Matt, you go to church, what's Christianity about? Well, you tell them, one line. Christianity is about coming to belong to Jesus, the one who alone has the power to save. That's a summary. It's as simple as that. It's not a call to good works, not a call to Ten Commandments, not a call to find your achievements, uh, your, your, your identity and significance in yourself. No, it's a call to belong to Jesus. And it's a call to trust that Jesus has the power to save you in life. See? That's, all you gotta, that, that's, that's uh, what we call the elevator pitch, right? That's, that's the gospel, basically, in summary. Okay? Both the religious and the secular view of life actually says, look within and save yourself. Look to your intellect and achievements to save you. Look to your morality or your good works to save yourself. Or, or look to certain people to complete us. Uh, look to having certain possessions to give us the significance and security we want in life. Uh, look to certain pursuits to find your happiness in life. That's the secular vision of life. Basically, the religious and the secular says, find your salvation in people, possessions, and pursuits. The religious and the secular says, you have the power to save yourself. But notice Christianity is so different, isn't it? Christianity says, stop trying to save yourself. You don't have the power to save yourself, but people, possessions, and pursuits also don't have the power to save you. The good news of Christianity is that the power of God to save has been given to you, gifted to you, that you receive by faith and not earn, you, that you receive by trusting Jesus, not in your works, but His work. Imagine with me for a moment, okay? And you can certainly imagine this uh, just pause and imagine with me for a moment. To know a lasting love in your life that's not earned but given to you. To know an unshakable security that's not worked for but gifted to you. Uh, to know a wealth that never ends that's given to you. To know a freedom from guilt and shame that doesn't depend on you constantly trying to make up for your sins but gifted to you. You can imagine that, can't you? Well, Christianity actually says the power of God to save has been given to you in Jesus. That's why it's good news. And how does Jesus save? Well, we saw last week, right, verse 3 and verse 4. We saw last week, if you missed it last week, Jesus comes as God's promised hero of heroes. Uh, in the storyline of the Bible, He is the King everyone has been waiting for, looking for. The King who comes to save us from the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of our lives, who comes to bring the lasting rule of peace and justice and prosperity, what every heart longs for, who establishes His lasting rule by overcoming the ultimate suffering, by overcoming the ultimate loss, by conquering the ultimate sickness and separation, death itself, reversing it by His resurrection, undoing the power of death by His resurrection. And if He's faced the ultimate judgment, 
if Jesus has faced the ultimate suffering, if He's faced the, the ultimate brokenness in my life, death of the cross, and saved me from it, surely, surely, He has the power to save me in life right now, to give me the lasting love I'm looking for, the unshakable security I need from my circumstances, a wealth that never runs out, a freedom from guilt and shame forever. Surely, He has the power to do that, which is why in Christianity, the call is to belong to Jesus, because then Jesus is the power of God to save. Notice there are two alternatives in life, isn't it? right? There are only two alternatives in life, uh, two ways to live, as it were. We look to find our salvation in the power of people, possessions, and pursuits by our works, and we effectively live our lives under their control, their direction, their rule. We belong to people, possessions, and pursuits. They own us because we think they can save us, or we look to find our salvation in the power of Jesus, His work for us, and we live our lives under His control, His direction, His rule, because we believe He can save us. There are only two ways to live. And so here's the second thing I want you to notice about what it means to belong to Jesus. Have a look at verse 5. Okay, so we're moving back up now. The call to belong to Jesus is a call to obedience that comes from faith. Notice what Paul says about what it means to belong to Jesus. Through Him, we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. You see there? For His namesake. Notice that the call to belong to Jesus is a call to respond to Jesus in a very, very specific way. He doesn't say the call of the gospel is a call to obedience. He doesn't say the call of the gospel is a call to faith. He mentions both, doesn't he? Obedience and faith. It's strange, isn't it? Why does Paul do that? He does it because the right response to Jesus involves both faith and obedience, faith and faithfulness, trust and obedience. Now, you want to get this right because if you get this wrong, you'll be out of step. Uh, you'll be out of tune when it comes to Jesus in your life. You also want to get it right so that when you introduce people to Jesus, you're calling them to respond rightly. Notice Paul does not separate the life of obedience from the life of faith. He treats them together because they're two sides of the same coin. Now, some of you, I know you use the ESV Bible. ESV Bible reads, Paul seeks to bring about the obedience of faith. The NIV reads, the obedience that comes from faith. And it does that because what it's trying to communicate to us is that faith and obedience, they stand side by side, okay? Faith that is obedience, obedience that is faith. Now, pause and think about it with me for a moment. What is faith? Uh, you heard Warren share, faith is nothing more than an act of surrender. It's an act of trust, isn't it? Faith is not, nothing more than trusting obedience. I trust you enough to listen to you. Uh, I trust you enough to surrender my will to you. Uh, I listen to you because I trust you. They're two sides of the same coin. Uh, and so what actually happens is when Paul calls people to belong to Jesus, He's calling them to what? He's calling them to an obedient faith. Obedience that is faith, faith that is obedience. If in Jesus is the power of God to save, then it's not just right. It's good to surrender to His rule, to His will, to listen to His words, to come under His command. In fact, in the book of Romans, uh, faith and obedience are actually used quite interchangeably. I've put a couple of verses down there for you so you can have a look at that. Uh, Romans chapter 1 verse 8 runs in parallel to the closing 
uh, chapter in the book of Romans, Romans 16, verse 9. Uh, I'll read that for us. So if you come down to verse 8, you'll see it there in front of you. It says, Firstly, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world, right? So Paul gives thanks because, hey, uh, the Roman Christians, their faith is being reported all, all over the world. But you notice when you get to the end of the book of Romans, this is what Paul writes. He writes the same thing. But he says, everyone, verse 19, chapter 16, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. He uses the words interchangeably, right? Uh, and so Paul, in calling men and women to belong to Jesus, he does not separate faith from obedience, two sides of the same coin. Because faith is nothing more than trusting Jesus enough to come under His rule, to submit to His will in life, to surrender to His commands, because you trust Him. Um, you know, if you're a dentist and I come, you know, to your clinic, I surrender to you as my dentist when I sit in the dental chair, don't I? You say, sit in the chair. That's faith, a trusting obedience, okay? Uh, and to surrender to someone is to obey their command, their words. And so this is the reason why I listen to your instructions, right? I sit in the dental chair. When you say, open your mouth, I don't shut my mouth. I trust you enough, so I open my mouth so that you can actually fix my teeth. Two sides to the same coin. Now, at this point, I want you to understand, faith is not a religious thing. You know, often the, the great myth is that, ah, you know, you're a Christian, uh, you, you, know, you, you know, you have faith. That's a religious thing. I'm not a Christian. I'm not a man or woman of faith. That's not true. Faith isn't a, isn't, isn't a religious thing. It's an everybody thing. Because everyone has faith. Uh, secular people have faith. Atheists have faith. Agnostic people have faith. Everyone has faith. Uh, I read this week in an online article on The Big Think. Uh, it's a website to help businesses transform and drive culture. Uh, and it was really interesting. This art article was titled, All Humans Are Believers. Did you hear that? All humans are believers. Uh, and it's not written by a Christian, by the way. And, and this is what it wrote, right? This is what the author wrote. Even if you are a vocal atheist, you still believe in your creed that there is no God. That's faith. Given that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, to say that the lack of evidence for a supernatural being is enough to rule out its existence in some definitive sense is, well, an act of faith. It's belief in non-belief. So you too have belief. And so here's the thing, right? We're all people of faith, believer or unbeliever, Christian or secular. And what actually happens is we always act in obedience to that which we put our faith in. Uh, we act in obedience to that which we trust has the power to save us in life. We surrender to the will of that which we think has the power to save us in life. And so, so this is the reason why uh, religious people, they trust in their good works. It's an act of faith. I trust my good works, my morality, because it has the power to save me, to give me forgiveness, which is why it controls my life, it dictates my life, right? Which is why every time I do something wrong, I'm guilty. I feel guilty. Uh, that's the reason why secular people, right? They trust in their careers. So the Christian people, by the way, but generally, that's why secular people trust in their careers, their work. It's an act of faith. I trust that my career or my work has the power to save me, which is why it controls my life more than it shapes my, uh, more, more than my family shapes my life, right? Because I trust in the power of my career. Uh, that's why people trust in a love relationship. It's an act of faith. I trust that this love relationship has the power to save me, complete me which is why it directs my life. Notice that you only ever put your faith in what you believe has the power to save you, to give you something that's missing in your life, 
to fix something broken in your life, to meet some need in your life. That's why faith is not a Christian thing, it's an everybody thing. And what you put your faith in is always an expression of your surrender to the object of your faith. A life lived in submission to the object of your faith, a life of obedience, as it were, to your faith. And so the call to belong to Jesus is a call to an obedient faith in the power of Jesus to save. I trust your power enough to save me in life. I surrender to your will in my life because I trust that you have the power to save me. Not people, not pursuits, not possessions. So how do you know if you belong to Jesus? Well, very simple. Look at whether your belonging to Jesus is marked by an obedient faith in Him or whether your life belongs to something or someone else, controlled by something or someone else, dictated by something or someone else. Very simple. Uh, in, the, in, in his novel, Stephen King, some of you read Stephen King novels, but in his novel, If It Bleeds, uh, Stephen King quotes uh, from the philosopher Henry David Thoreau. Uh, I've got the quote there in your outline. He writes, Henry Thoreau said that we don't own things, things own us. Every new object, whether it's a home, a car, a television, or a fancy phone like that one, is something more we must carry on our backs. And so, so effectively, this is how we live our lives, right? We keep accumulating. We keep accumulating uh, people, possessions, and things in our lives, and they just get heavier and heavier and heavier. Uh, I don't know whether you realize this, uh, secular people actually believe they're free. No one is free, according to Henry David Thoreau. We're all owned by someone or something in our lives, by people, possessions, and pursuits in our lives that we believe has the power to save us, to give us love, to make us happy, to give us security, to deal with our guilt and shame, to help us with our anxiety, to help us cope with stress. The list is endless. Now, this is what Thoreau is saying. We think we own things, but things actually own us. They don't belong to us, we belong to them. Uh, and every new object we look to, every new person we look to, every new pursuit we indulge in, every possession we feel the need to acquire, every object we look to find our salvation in life, the people, the possessions, the pursuits that we put our faith in, the home, the car, the new phone, the better job, the bigger holiday, that love relationship, is something that you are carrying on your back that just gets heavier and heavier as more and more things start to own you in life. And as we more and more surrender our lives in obedience to those things, guess what? And some of you know this, you've experienced this. The weight just gets heavier and heavier in your life as you live more and more under its power, its control, its grip, its expectations, and for some of you, it is crushing you. It's a pressure you live under. A power that you thought could save you, only to find yourself enslaved. A power that you thought could save you, only to find yourself crushed. A power that you thought could give you freedom, only to find yourself even more burdened living under its control. Some of you feel that this morning? I think some of you do. You know, like the story of Hansel and Gretel, captivated by the gingerbread house of sweets busy gobbling away, stuffing their faces, only to find themselves belonging, owned 
by the witch. If it's true, if it's true that we don't own things and things own us, it means that we are actually today all living our lives under some servitude. Either things that we have no control over, some power in life that you have no control over and you're forced to submit to it, and you're looking for escape, for salvation. Or maybe you're living your life in servitude to things that you give obedience to because you think it will save you. Servitude to the power of people, possessions, and pursuits. A love relationship, financial security, a successful career, academic achievement. And you live your life in its control. You're trying to meet its expectations. You're trying to win what it promises. You listen and you obey it. You're in captivity. You belong to it, perhaps and you find yourself crushed. Now, the good news of the gospel is that there is a power that isn't going to crush you. There is a power to save you that isn't going to be a burden in your life. There is a power to save that doesn't say, meet my expectations, and I'll save you. Uh, Be a better person, and I'll give you love. Work harder, and I'll forgive you. No, the power of God to save is seen in, notice, what Jesus does for you. Not what you do, but what He does. Because what happens at the cross? He dies the death that should have been yours. He faces your judgment, your ultimate brokenness, your ultimate pain and suffering at the cross. He dies the death that should have been yours, but He also reverses death. He undoes death. And because of that, He is able to save. In fact, you know, Jesus says this Himself, right? Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Some of you are familiar with this, and maybe you need to reflect on this passage this week. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, as He extends His invitation, notice what He says, as He extends His call, He says, come to Me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. See that? He has the power to save. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. Submit, surrender to My will. Why? Because I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Coming to belong to Jesus is coming to find what? Rest. Not in working to save yourself, but in trusting Jesus to save you. Not in working to be loved, but to be loved. Not in working to know wealth and security, but to be given a wealth and security that is lasting. Not in working to be forgiven, but to be forgiven. And trusting Him, faith in Him, is now expressed in coming under His yoke, learning from Him, living under His rules, submitting to His will, surrendering to His Word, obeying Him, not to earn your salvation, but because He saved you. And notice it's no longer a burden, because unlike everything else in life, it's gifted to you. You obey not to earn it. You work not to earn it. You obey because you trust in His power to save from whatever's happening in your life. The call to belong to Jesus is the call to an obedient faith in the power of Jesus to save you in all of life because He has saved you from the ultimate pain and suffering in life. I trust your power to save me, right, enough to listen to you in all of life. Why? Because you've saved me at the cross from my ultimate brokenness. I surrender to your will in my life because I trust your power to save me in the here and now because you have saved me from the ultimate suffering at the cross right? How do you know you belong to Jesus? Well, look at whether your belonging to Jesus is marked by an obedient faith in Him, or in belonging to and being controlled by something else in your life. And that is how all of life works as well. What you trust in life, you will listen to and act on. What you always listen to and act on is what you trust in life. It's not 
obedient faith in Jesus that you live by. If it's something else, I can guarantee it's an obedient faith to that something else in life. You belong to something else in life, right? Just pause with me for a moment. What owns your life? What constantly captures and dominates your thoughts in life? What are the things you obsess about? Either because they cause you fear and you're looking for salvation, or maybe it's the stuff that you obsess about because you think they have the power to save you. What are you desiring in life? What are, your, what are you always running to and looking for in life? What dominates your thoughts, your dreams, your emotions? That is often going to be what you believe has the power to save you in life. More than you realize. They are your saviors. That's probably the object of your obedient faith in life right now. It's probably controlling your, right, your life right now, if you think about it. It's got your heart in its grip. It's got your emotions controlled. It's got you enslaved. You belong to it. And that's also what you're trusting in life right now, for love and for security, for happiness, for significance, for worth, for contentment, even for forgiveness. Whatever you are looking for to find salvation, that's probably the object of your obedient faith. If it's not Jesus, it's something else. And everyone practices an obedient faith. That's why Paul wants us to be very clear on this. You're called to belong to Jesus, and those who belong to Jesus are marked by an obedient faith to Him. And if it's not to Jesus you belong, then you probably belong to something or someone else in life. Biblical faith is always an obedient faith. Saving faith is always an obedient faith because it surrenders to the one who has saved me. Let me end by way of story. Some of you have heard this story. I suspect if you've been at Grace Point probably for more than a decade, you would have heard the story, but if you haven't, it will be new to you. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher uh, in the 1800s who wrote lots of stuff. Uh, and, and he actually often wrote to challenge the established church of his day. Uh, he wrote really to challenge the affluence of the church, the comfort of the church, uh, the church's obsession with things, people, possessions, pursuits, the comfortable life. Um, really, it sounds like the modern church. And he wrote in parables or stories. Uh, one of the parables he wrote uh, was uh, the story of a land inhabited or settled by ducks. And so this is what he writes. I'm going to read this for us. On Sunday morning, all the ducks would get up, brush their feathers, and waddle off to church. After waddling down the aisle and into their seats, they would squat. The duck pastor would waddle in, take his place behind the pulpit. He would open the duck Bible to the place where it spoke of God's great gift to ducks. The good news to ducks, wings, wings. With wings, said the duck pastor, we ducks can fly. We can mount up like eagles and soar. No wall can confine you. No fence can hold you. You have wings. We must all give thanks to God for so great a gift as wings. And all the ducks would agree, and they would all shout, Amen. Then they would sing a song, and they would all waddle home. Off key, out of tune with the call of the gospel. Now, that's a parable, isn't it? But maybe the story goes like this. 
Here's another version of the story. On Sunday morning, all the people would get up, some earlier, some later than others, brush their teeth, pack their kids into the car, and drive off to church. After walking through the front doors and taking their seats, they would sit down. The pastor would come in and take his place behind the pulpit. He would open the Bible to the place where it spoke of the power of God to save in Jesus, the good news we all need, the promised Son who has come to save us from the brokenness of our world and our lives, the promised Son has come to die for our sins, the Son who dies the death that should have been ours, the Son who has faced our brokenness, our ultimate pain and suffering, death itself, but also of the Son who conquered death, who reverses and undoes death. He rose over the ultimate enemy in our lives, and because of that, He's able to save us from everything else in life. The power to save all who trust Him. From our fears, from our insecurities, He can give us the love we're looking for, the wealth we seek, the forgiveness we want. And all the people would agree and they would sing, Yes, we believe. This life I live is not my own. For my Redeemer paid the price. He took it to be His alone to be His treasure and His prize, my life, the things of earth I leave behind to live in worship of my King. Then having sung, they would have their flat whites and lattes, go for lunch, and then go home, surrendering their lives to the power of people, possessions, and pursuits to save them. Obsessing over their money, consumed with their careers, looking for significance in their relationships, living for their children, pursuing the next holiday, belonging not to Jesus, but to people, possessions, and pursuits. They too go home off-key, out of tune with the call of the gospel. Let me say this to you this morning. Understand the nature of biblical faith. The call to belong to Jesus is a call to an obedient faith. In the power of Jesus alone to save you in all of life. I trust your power to save enough to surrender my life to you, and I surrender to your will in my life because I truly trust your power to save me. You've saved me at the cross, and I now trust you to save me in all of life. That's what it means to belong to Jesus Christ. And if it's not Jesus you belong to, it's probably something or someone else who's the object of your faith and life this morning. Let me really encourage you uh, this week to take some time to reflect on the three questions there in your outline. Reflect on them because I think if you take the time to do it, there are three life-changing questions. Because the way you answer them will encourage you to keep taking steps forward trusting Jesus. Or maybe, just maybe, it'll help you realize there are things in your life you need to start stepping away from. And as you start to take the first step stepping away from those things, it might just help you take first steps to trusting Jesus. Like, where are you looking to find the power of salvation in your life? Good question to ask, right? Where are you looking to, to find your functional salvation right now? Who do you actually belong to, right? What controls you? Who or what owns your life? Now, maybe today, some of you, you've realized how much of a grip certain people, certain possessions, certain pursuits have a grip in your life. They own you more than you realize. They control you and maybe even are crushing you. Maybe you've realized you've been looking to find your salvation there, and it's not given you 
the love that you've been looking for, the security you've hoped for, the forgiveness you've longed for. Maybe the first step is actually repentance. We're not very good at that as Christians, you know. The first step maybe is actually repentance, to turn from those things, to recognize our mistake, to reject the altars where we have looked to find salvation. And having done that, maybe today is a first step to turn to the one who actually has the power to save you. Let me pray for us. Father, we want to acknowledge that we are a community of idol worshippers, because an idol is nothing more than a place, a pursuit, a possession, a person we look to find our salvation in life. And so we're all idol worshippers, and so we come in a spirit of humility and repentance. Give us the humility and the willingness to repent, to actually say, you know, those things can't save me, but to not stop there. Give us the strength, the faith, the boldness, the courage, not just to turn from those things, but to turn to look to Jesus to find our salvation in all of life. Not just forgiveness of sin, but to meet, to match, and to overwhelmingly deal with everything we need saving for in life, from in life. And we pray and ask this in His name. Amen.